0: Open your Bible to Genesis 5 and then move back two verses to chapter 4, verse 25, and that's where we'll begin reading today. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For, she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call the name Of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived 815 years after he became the father of Kenan, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were nine hundred and five years, and he died. Kenan lived seventy years and became the father of Mahalalel. Then Kenan lived eight hundred and forty years after he became the father of Mahalalel, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Kenan were nine hundred and ten years, and he died. Mahalalel lived sixty-five years and became the father of Jared. Then Mahalalel lived eight hundred and thirty years after he became the father of Jared, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Methuselah lived 187 years and became their father of Lamech. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. Noah was 500 years old and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Lord, as we study Your Word today, we need Your help. We need Your Spirit to open our eyes to see wonderful things from Your law. We need Your Spirit to open our ears so that we may hear what the Spirit says to the church. We need Your Spirit to till the soil of our hearts so that the seed of the Word might fall on good soil, and produce fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. So open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts, and Lord, open our minds. Help us clearly understand what You're saying here. That we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That we would understand what the good and acceptable and perfect will of the Lord is for our lives from Genesis 5. So help us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was a boy, um, I used to uh, run about this time of year in the south. It's a little warmer than it is here and there's not snow on the ground. And so as St. As Patrick's Day would approach uh, in the early parts of spring in the south, I would get on my hands and knees like many of you did and look for four-leaf clovers. If you ever done that? Uh, you know how the routine goes. You start out very slowly and with anticipation, uh, picking one stem at a time, examining it carefully, and then throwing it aside because you find that drat, it only has three leaves. And you continue that process for a while, and after you do it 100 or 200 times, your enthusiasm begins to fade, and you move more quickly from one clover to the other, not even expecting anymore to find what you're looking for. And if you stick with it long enough, the process eventually becomes so routine that when you finally do run across a four-leaf clover, you almost pitch it into the garbage pile because you weren't expecting to find one. Right? That's how it is sometimes when we read the Bible. Especially when we read passages like Genesis 5 that have these long genealogical records in them. Everything seems so repetitive that when a precious little flower of unusual and beautiful truth does spring up on the surface of the page, we almost whiz right by it without noticing. We weren't expecting to find something precious here in a genealogy. Let's not make that mistake this morning. Let's not just think that because there are a bunch of names that we can't pronounce and a bunch of guys that lived a few thousand years ago and had these long lives and it just seems all so odd and so monotonous, let's not think that there's not something here for us. There's actually a four leaf clover to be plucked from the predictable monotony of the landscape of Genesis 5. So there's a lesson to be learned here. There's also a lesson to be learned from the very fact that it's predictable and repetitive. And I want us first to learn that lesson before we go searching for the four leaf clover. When we read the passage, the repetition was obvious, wasn't it? So and so lived so many years, he had a son. He lived so many years after he had a son, and then he died. Over and over and over again. Adam had children and died. Seth had children and died. Enosh died. Kenan died. Mahalel died. Jared died. Methuselah died. Lamech died. They all had sons and daughters. They all lived a long time, and they all died and it's all repeated over and over and over again. So the question is, why the monotony? Why does God include this here at all? Or at least, why does He include it with such a long, drawn-out chapter? Well, one reason is that we might realize that God meant what He said back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. Back in Genesis two seventeen, God told Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree in that garden. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. God meant what He said. Adam and Eve began the process of dying the day that Eve ate that fruit and passed it along to her husband. God means what He says. And Genesis 5 is an example of that. Everyone that lived after Adam lived and died. Had Adam and Eve obeyed God and not eaten of the fruit, they would still be alive to this day. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 are teaching us. But they didn't, and so they haven't. Death has reigned, both physical death and spiritual death, from the days of Adam through all of his descendants as we see in Genesis chapter 5, throughout the rest of the Bible, and it reigns down to this very day. Physical death, all of us die, and spiritual death, all of us are born apart from God. And so this becomes painfully clear in Genesis chapter 5 and that's why it has so much of and he died in it. It's a sobering chapter. And even though in chapter 4, verse 26, men had begun to call on the name of the Lord and seek forgiveness for their sins, the effects of sin were still in the world because God meant what He said. Even though the possibility of forgiveness was held out even with Adam and Eve in chapter 3, the repercussions, the earthly repercussions of their sin were still going to remain until Jesus comes and makes all things new. They still remain. There are a couple of lessons to be learned in that. In this chapter 5 reminding us that God meant what He said, that death is the consequence of sin. The first lesson is this. When you and I are confronted with human death, we ought to be sobered by it. When you and I stand over a coffin... Whether it's the coffin of a believer or the coffin of an unbeliever, we ought to be sobered by death. And not just by what lies beyond death, that there's an eternity that awaits us, but by what actually precedes death. Every time we stand over a coffin, we ought to think the reason why we die is because sin came into the world and sin has remained in the world. And so we ought to look at that person who doesn't look like themselves anymore and who has gone from us, and we ought to say how terrible sin must be. If this is the result suffering and pain and death and decay, if that's the result of sin, God must hate sin. And therefore God must really hate my sin. That's one effect of this chapter, one sobering thought from this chapter. But there's a second lesson that we can learn from the repetitiveness of the death caused by Adam and Eve's sin. And that is that our sins very well likely will be having effects long after we are gone. Your sins and my sins will be affecting people after we are dead and gone. Adam certainly did. Thousands of years passed in this one chapter. or Roughly over a thousand anyway. And Adam's sin was still having an effect on his family. And the same is true for us. God actually promises several times in the book of Exodus and then again in Numbers that He will visit the sins of the fathers upon the third and the fourth generation of their children. Now what does that mean? I don't think it means that God is going to punish our kids and our grandkids for our sins. But what I do think it means is that our sins are going to have a negative effect on our kids and on their kids after them and on their kids after them. And Lord willing, by His grace, He will break the cycle. But our kids are affected by our sins and their kids will be affected when we are in the grave. That's what we can learn here. Our children, many of them, will inherit brokenness and bitterness from us, sin habits of their own that they learned by watching us. And that they learned by being raised by us. Our sins against them and in front of them will stay with them, most of them, for their lives. And they may affect their children and their children's children as well. I like the lines of a song that Sarah Groves wrote uh, about six years ago ago. Uh, Concerning the first few chapters of Genesis, she said this, Remind me of this with every decision. Generations will will reap what I sow. I can pass on a curse or a blessing to those I will never know. And that is true of us, and we learn it here in Genesis 5. So, let us, like the sons of Seth back in chapter 4, verse 26, call on the name of the Lord and be forgiven for those sins that we are committing Romans 10.13 says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news. Let's do that this morning. Sobered by sin, sobered by the effects that it causes, let's seek forgiveness. And let's remember that that forgiveness is free to us because it has been purchased by another, namely Jesus Christ. He has died so that we can be forgiven. So forgiveness is free to us and it costs Him his life. But let me say this as we move on into chapter 5 a little deeper. Let's not simply this morning be content to say, I'm forgiven. This is great. Now I can go on with my life. And then settle into the drab landscape of Genesis 5. That's the temptation. To say, well, I'm forgiven. Now I can live my life, have kids, live a little bit more, do what I want, and die. And that's what most people in church pews this Sunday morning are doing. They're not living for God with all their heart. They're just glad Jesus died so I don't have to go to hell. Great. Come to church. Do my thing. Live. Die. Never make an impact in the world. Let's not do that. Let's not be content to be forgiven, but let's be compelled to walk with God. See, that's the four-leaf clover in Genesis 5. Among a family who apparently worshipped the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord as we read at the end of chapter 4, Enoch stood out like a shining star on an otherwise cloudy night. All of his ancestors lived, had children, lived some more, had some more children, and died. Nothing else significant could be said about them. But Enoch, verse 24, walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. And I long for us, for you and I, to live close to God like that. So let's think about, with the rest of our time, what it meant for Enoch to walk with God and what it will mean for us to do the same. And I want to say three things about Enoch's walking with God and then make some concluding points. So, first, walking with God implies, at the very least, that Enoch was a friend of God. When the Bible says Enoch walked with God, that implies that he was God's friend. That's the most basic idea suggested by the phrase Enoch walked with God. And if we think that out, it makes perfect sense, right? Two people don't usually go on a walk together unless they are friends. Right? There are lots of people in my neighborhood that go on walks, and I see them out walking. Some of them take their walks right through the churchyard. I see them go right by these windows when I'm here during the week. I don't walk with all those people because they're not my friends, right? And if I were to go up to one of those people and just saddle up alongside of them and start telling them how my day went, their walk would quickly turn into a jog and then into a run, right? Who's this guy? And what is he doing? We don't walk with people that we don't know, right? Teach your children that. We practice that as adults. So Enoch must have known God. He must have been friends with God. God, they must have had a relationship of some sort. Somebody will say, okay, well, what's remarkable about that? Doesn't everybody in their own way or in some fashion have a relationship with God? After all, God made us. So is it really necessary to say Enoch had a relationship with God? Everybody does, right? No. Everybody doesn't have a relationship with God. Yes, God made us. Yes, God knows everything about us. But we've been separated from Him by our sin. Colossians 1.21 says that human race is alienated and hostile to God. That's not the language of friendship and relationship, is it? And we discovered the reason why we're alienated and hostile when we read Genesis 3. Sin. Adam and Eve sinned against God and so have all those who have followed followed them in the human race. And therefore, we are alienated from God and we are hostile to God. That's the language of war. That's the language of Al-Qaeda and democracy, right? Alienated from one another and hostile towards one another. Both sides hostile toward one another. That's the language that is used in the Bible for our relationship or lack thereof with God. Hostility. Alienation. And so it comes then, not as just a blasé statement, but a bold print headline when we read about someone, anyone, who is said to have walked with God. The whole race is alienated, and yet somehow someone walked with God? How did that happen? Something amazing has to happen for Enoch or for any of us to be called a friend of God. And if we go back to that passage I just read to you in Colossians 1, verses 21 and 22, we find out exactly what has happened. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death. The He being Jesus. The first half of that sentence reminds us of what I've been saying. Humanity is alienated from God because of our evil deeds, our sin. But the second half of that sentence tells us that we may be reconciled to God, that we may become a friend of God through the death of God of Jesus. Because Jesus in His death has satisfied the justice of God toward guerrilla rebels like us. We've turned our weapons towards God. Not just turned our backs on God, turned our weapons towards God. We were hostile towards Him. That's what it says. But God has made reconciliation. God has sent an ambassador to make peace with us. And He did it through dying the death Of a cross. The death sentence that we deserve was laid on him so that we, like Enoch, may become friends of God. And none of that had happened yet in Genesis 5. But God had already promised it in Genesis 3 and foreshadowed it in Genesis 3. And He's been talking about it all throughout the Old Testament. When we get to the New Testament, we find that people like Enoch in the Old Testament knew that a Savior was coming. They knew that God was sending someone to die for their sins and they were looking forward to that and trusting in that Savior. They didn't know His name, but they knew what He was about and they were trusting in Him. So Enoch was right with God. Enoch was friends with God by looking forward to the Savior whom He had been promised and by walking in the benefit of forgiveness. And we become friends of God by looking back to the Savior whom we read about in the New Testament named Jesus and by walking in the benefit of forgiveness of sins. So what I'm arguing is this in this first point. You and I, like Enoch, may be called friends with God. But we may only be called friends with God if we come to God with Jesus as our ambassador. It's the only way of peace. And that's important. Because I meet with lots of people in my office for various counseling concerns and I almost always, if I don't know them, begin by asking them to describe for me their relationship with God. And I very rarely meet someone that says, I don't have a relationship with God. Almost everyone purports to have a relationship with God. Well, I know He takes care of me and He was there when I was, had that wreck a couple of weeks ago and He protected me. And they talk all about this relationship with God in these nebulous terms, but they never, almost never, mention their sin and they almost never mention the death of Jesus. And the only way that we can have a relationship with God is to admit our sins, admit that we are hostile and alienated from God, and that He has brought us near by His death. And almost everyone I talk to completely skips over those things just assuming that because they believe in God and they ask for His help when they get in a jam, that everything must be okay and they must be His friends. And it's simply not... So, the only people who have a relationship with God are those who have first recognized themselves to be his enemies because of their sins, and second, having recognized that, are clinging only to a bleeding, dying Savior as their ambassador of peace. So, before we go on any deeper into what it means to walk with God, I feel compelled to ask you if you've done that. Are you just assuming that everything's okay between you and God? Or have you admitted that you've been his enemy and that he wants to make friends and that he has made it possible through Jesus? Have you come to God and confessed your sins and put your hope in a Savior? Or are you still thinking everything's okay between you and God? It's not okay unless you have a Savior. So Enoch, like you and I, was born as a sinner against God. He inherited sin from Adam. And when we read that Enoch walked with God, we are reading a remarkable story indeed. A story of free grace to one who didn't deserve it. You have a story like that to tell? Until you do, you will be unable to benefit from the rest of what we're going to say from Genesis 5. So that would be my most important plea to you this morning. If you're here without a Savior, you need one. You need a friendship with God through Christ. Secondly, though, walking with God implies that Enoch was an intimate friend of God. Walking with God implied that Enoch was a friend of God, number one. Number two, walking with God implies that Enoch was an intimate friend with God. So now we're going a step deeper. Two people don't go on a walk together usually unless they're friends or acquaintances. But even most friends don't go on walks together, do they? I have lots of friends who are pastors in this city. I trust them. I respect them. I like them. I spend time with them. But I don't usually go on afternoon strolls with them. And neither do you with the people that you work with probably. The kind of intimacy... Where two people go on a stroll together is reserved for the closest relationships. So I go on walks with my wife, with my dad when he's in town, and with my children. The people that are closest to me are the ones that I go on walks with. And I'm sure the same is true with you. You go on walks with those who are your closest friends. So when we read in verses 22 and 24 that Enoch walked with God, we have an idea of what that means. They weren't just friends, they were intimate friends. It wasn't awkward for them to spend elongated, intimate time just walking and talking together. That informs us that Enoch and God were intimate friends. And I want you to see something else. Again, through the metaphor of walking, intimacy is not something that just happens. Intimacy is something that is cultivated. So think again about the people with whom you might go on a walk. Why do you walk with people? Walk to get exercise? Maybe. You walk to get fresh air? Maybe. Some of you might walk as a mode of transportation to get to the corner market. But Why do you walk together with people? You can get exercise and fresh air and go to the market on your own. Why do you invite someone along with you when you go on a walk? Well, the answer is this. You invite someone to go along with you so that you can talk with them. You walk so that you can talk. Why do Toby and I enjoy going on walks together? Because walking gets us away from the distractions, away from the telephone or the internet or whatever it is at home and gives us the opportunity to talk with one another and to deepen the intimacy that already exists. So we walk with people because we're already intimate with them. And we also walk with people so that we may become more intimate with them. And I think both of these ideas are in view when Genesis 5 tells us Enoch walked With God. Walking says that he was intimate. Walking says that he wanted to become more intimate. Is that what you're like? You need to be thinking that as we walk through Genesis together. The reason I mention that walking deepens intimacy is so that we realize that Enoch's friendship, his close friendship with God, didn't just happen overnight. The initial striking up of a friendship happened that quickly when Enoch repented of his sins and put his trust in the Savior who was to come. But the intimacy of the friendship deepened over time as Enoch walked 300 years, verse 22 says, with God. And the same thing is true for us. When we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, instantly we have a friendship with God. But the friendship doesn't deepen unless we continue to walk with God over a period of time. None of us will walk with Him on this earth 300 years, but we can walk with Him for decades. Some of you have. The question, though, is how do we do that? What does it mean to walk with God? What does that mean? I don't think it means that God is going to show up in bodily form and walk with you around the neighborhood when you go for your afternoon walks. God doesn't usually do it that way. So what does it mean to walk with God who is invisible? Think one more time about the kind of people you walk with and why you walk. The reward of going on a walk with my wife is that we get to have uninterrupted conversation with one another. That's the essence of going on a walk with somebody. If that's the essence of going on a walk with somebody, then I conclude that the essence of going on a walk with God must be uninterrupted time to converse with Him. And the way we converse with Him is first by allowing Him to speak with us by His Spirit through the Bible and secondly by telling all our hearts to Him as we speak to Him in normal, everyday English in this conversation called prayer. Both of those are important. You can't have a conversation with somebody unless you let them speak. And the way God's going to speak is through His Word. But you can't have a conversation with somebody if you never speak back to them and if you're not honest with them. And you know, it would be pretty strange for your wife or your husband or your kids if you went on a walk with them and you started coming out with all this King James English, trying to act like you were smarter than you were and like you had to talk to them in a certain way for them to listen. That's not God. You don't have to know lots of church language. It's nice. It's helpful. But you just talk to God in your normal everyday language and let Him talk to you in His normal everyday language, which is the Bible. Let me just say to you, you'll never have uninterrupted, clear-headed conversation with God unless you invite Him to go on a walk with you. Unless you invite Him to have that uninterrupted time. Unless you set aside specific times for you to meet with God The cares of the day will keep you as isolated and frustrated as a married couple who never has any time alone. Your people may be friends, they may be married, but if they never have time alone, if they don't set aside time alone, they won't grow in intimacy and neither will you with God. So that's why I'm always encouraging you to adopt a daily Bible reading plan. I don't do that so I can beat you over the head and say you need to be more godly and if you just read the Bible, you would all be better off. And don't do it to say, listen, reading the Bible every day is a prerequisite to heaven and anybody who doesn't do that is not going there. That's not the message. The reason why I'm saying read your Bible every day is because when you open this book, you give God an opportunity to speak His heart to you, to converse with you, and for you to respond and tell Him what's in your heart. That's the way intimate friendships are made. I want you to experience the joy and the privilege of a deep, heartfelt relationship with the Almighty God. It's an amazing privilege. So whether you literally go on a walk when you talk to God, or whether you just go in your closet, you need to have a quiet place and a quiet time to get alone with God and spend some solid minutes in conversation with Him. You have that? Could you... Could it be said of you, he walks with God, she walks with God? Or you can simply content to live, have kids, go to work, come home, watch TV, and die. Walk with God. Thirdly, walking with God implies that Enoch was different from the world around him. Enoch was different from the world around him. That's the most obvious thing in Genesis five, isn't it? The lives of the rest of Adam's descendants rest quietly on the page as mere black ink on white paper, but Enoch's life in verse twenty-one through twenty-four jumps out at you like a neon sign. So Adam, Seth, Enoch, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Lamech. Methuselah, all his guys just lived, had children, and died. But Enoch walked with God. It's clearly meant to catch your eye. To say Enoch was different than everybody else in his family. He was a holy man among an apparently religious family. Remember, men began to call on the name of the Lord. These were the guys that would have been in the worship service. But Enoch was different. Enoch stood out in the midst of the worship service and in the midst of his religious family. One of the differences was certainly the time that he spent alone with God. But I think that there was more to Enoch's walking with God than simply meditation and prayer, as important as that was. And we discovered that that must be true, that there must be something more to Enoch's difference than just his prayer life when we researched the lives of other characters in the book of Genesis Genesis, who were said to have walked with God. And we want to just show you two of them. The first is Noah in Genesis 6-9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. And then the second is Genesis 17, 1, Abraham. Now when Abram, or Abram was his name at this point, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before Me and be blameless. What's the similarity between Abram and and Noah. They walked with God, yes. There was one other word that was repeated there, wasn't there? The word blameless. Noah walked with God and he was blameless in his time. Abraham was told, walk with me and be blameless. So I conclude from those two stories that part of what it means to walk with God is to be blameless. And what does that word mean? It doesn't refer to moral perfection. But what it means is to be whole or to have integrity. So when the Bible says someone was blameless, it doesn't say that they never did anything wrong. What it's saying is they had integrity. They walked whole before the Lord. So Enoch and Noah and Abraham walked with God, which means they had integrity. It means they did what was right and when they failed to do what was right, they admitted it, confessed it, and made things right with other people. Enoch walked with God And that means that he was morally upright to the point where those who might have sought to drag his name through the mud couldn't find any moral loopholes on which to fasten their hooks. That's the kind of man he was. And further, when he did stumble and fall, he must have been the kind of man because blameless is walking with God that when he stumbled, he immediately sought the Lord's forgiveness. He sought it from others and he made restitution with those people when it was necessary. So though Enoch was a sinner... He walked in such a way that no one could have questioned his sincerity or his commitment with the Lord. He had integrity. He was blameless. Can that be said about you? Are there all sorts of little sinful hooks in your life that people can fasten onto and drag you through the mud? Are you walking uprightly, confessing your sins when you need to so that no one can do those things? Is your heart attuned even to the smallest claims of the law of God upon your life? Are you just trying to do the big things right? Is your conscience so sensitive to your own sin that you cannot let the sun go down without doing everything within your power as far as it depends on you to have peace with all men? you have that kind of conscience? Or can you go to bed at night knowing that your wife is upset with you and that you mouthed off to your boss and that you did this wrong and this wrong and the other thing wrong, but eventually it will all iron itself out. That's not Enoch. The question is not about perfection, but about genuine integrity. It's a lifestyle lived under and pouring forth the grace of God so that the enemies of the cross do not have a leg to stand on when they look at you. Is that how you walk? i to read you an example of this kind of integrity. It's from the biography of one of my historical heroes. His name was Thomas Boston. He was a minister in the Church of Scotland in the 1700s. And this is what his friends wrote about him after he died. He was accurately and extensively regardful of the divine law in all manner of his life and conversation, even in the things that escaped the notice of the most part of Christians. Of a tender conscience, carefully watching against and avoiding the appearance of evil, compassionate and sympathizing with the distressed, charitable to the needy, a dutiful husband, an indulgent father, a faithful and affectionate friend. That's what it looks like to walk with God. If I had time with you, I'd unpack that whole paragraph. But I don't. So let me just reinforce two thoughts from it. First, a blameless walk includes paying attention to the claims of God upon your life, even the ones that many Christians seem to ignore. Don't think you would have found Enoch Enoch fudging his tax returns. Don't think you would have heard Enoch using God's name as an expression of frustration or surprise. Wouldn't have done that. Secondly, from that paragraph I just read, you note that a blameless walk also means that we not only avoid evil, but we avoid every appearance of evil, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.22. We don't even want to look like we're doing evil so that we don't stain God's name and put a stumbling block before other people. I highly doubt that Enoch would have launched an anti-pornography website and called it X Church, number one Christian internet porn site. If you saw that on the news, that is an abomination. God says, be innocent of evil. God says avoid all appearance of evil and God certainly does not care for churches putting on their screens or on their stages half-nude people parading back and forth to teach us how bad pornography is. That is an abomination. And those pastors that allow that will be held accountable. I also doubt that Enoch would have placed himself in compromising situations like so many young men and women who put themselves together in groups that aren't married and are very compromising because they're alone with no one to intervene and no one to prevent them from sinning or from looking like they're sinning. If you're a young lady and you want to come and visit me, and I invite you into my office, just me and you, to talk, whether something happens or not, I'm in the wrong. Because walking with God means avoiding all appearance of evil. Enoch would have hated, as Jude 23 says, even the garment polluted by the flesh. And like Noah and Abraham and Thomas Boston whom we read about, he would have been a man above reproach. That's what it means to walk with God. Now, perhaps the most amazing thing about these verses is that in them, Enoch is recorded as one of only two men in the Scriptures Elijah being the other who never died a physical death. God simply, it says, took him in verse 24. One little girl described it like this. Enoch and God used to take long walks together, and one day they walked further than usual. God said, Enoch, you must be tired. Come into my house and rest. Isn't that great? That's a picture of the end of a Christian's life, whether they die a painful death or not. Come into my house and rest. So one commentator says this, The finality of death caused by sin and so powerfully demonstrated in the genealogy of Genesis is in fact not so final. Man was not born to die, he was born to live. And that life comes by walking with God. Now, If Jesus tarries, none of us will experience heaven without first experiencing death. But nonetheless, we will experience heaven if we are walking with God. And that is a beautiful thing. Enoch is a true Old Testament picture of what a New Testament Christian looks like. He walked with God. He was a man stained by sin and in need of a Savior. He was a man who by faith looked forward to that Savior and therefore was welcomed as God's friend. He was a man who was so ravished by the mercy and friendship and love of God that he cultivated a walk of intimacy with Him He was a man changed, not by deeds that he had done in righteousness, but by the mercy and love of his friend. And he was a man who in due time was welcomed home to his father's mansion. And you know, Enoch still walks with God. And so will you if you begin now. That's what it means to be a Christian. Rescued by grace, befriended by God, changed by love and welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. That's what it means to walk with God. This is the pattern that is constantly before us in the Bible. And those who live in this pattern stand out from the pack, just like Enoch stood out in his day. So let me ask you finally if you stand out from the pack. Or let me ask it to you like this When you, like Enoch, have departed from this world, what will they write about you?